What's up, Daw Nation? My name's Wyatt Troy, and I want to welcome you to episode 48.5 of Behind the Daw, where we usually interview music producers, artists, music industry experts, singers, songwriters, and everyone else in between on an emotional, philosophical, artistic, and music business basis. But as you notice, this is a .5 episode, which means we took the audio from our YouTube series in the Daw, and we put it into podcast form so that you could partake of it on the go and get that perfect combination of emotional and technical knowledge. Now, if you would much rather watch this episode, no worries. There are links in the description. You could also just go to Multiplier's YouTube channel and type in in the DAW. But while I got you, who are we interviewing today? Today we're interviewing Kashmir. That's right, the freaking legend himself. You have probably used tons of his sample packs. I don't know if there's ever been someone on in the DAW that has not used a sample from Kashmir. This dude is amazing. He makes the best sample packs. And in fact, he just released his Sounds of Kashmir 3 pack. And actually, if you stick around, I might even tell you about how we're giving away a bunch of stuff from that sample pack for free. So stay tuned. So what are you going to be learning in this episode? You're going to be learning about using orchestral elements and EDM, processing and mixing vocals, gang vocals, the difference between a logarithmic and convolution reverb, using MIDI effects to help write melodies, and finally, what is the best realistic acoustic guitar contact library? All right, we're going to get into all of that, but as a bonus, like I mentioned before, we are giving away over a hundred samples from the Sounds of Cashmere 3 pack. But that's not all, Donation. We are also going to give away the stems to this song for free. 100% for free. There are links in the description. Also, if you are listening to this and you can't find the links because of the, the certain podcast app that you're listening on, no worries. Go to Multiplier's YouTube channel. Type in Cashmere in the DAW. In the description of that episode, you will be able to find it there. You can also just go to inthedaw.net slash Cashmere. So, Donation, I hope I got you stoked for this episode. But before we get into all of this, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Donation, imagine if you could learn extremely innovative sound design from a legend. Imagine five and a half hours of mind-blowing, in-depth videos explaining and exploring every detail on how to get the craziest sounds that no one else is making. Imagine being able to walk away with all the effects racks, instrument racks, and project files that are handcrafted by someone that has producer credits with Monster Cat, BT, Infected Mushroom, Virtual Riot, Elenium, Seven Lions, Ausla, and so many others. Now imagine all of that power being at your fingertips just a few minutes from now. Well, Daw Nation, what I just explained actually exists. The In The Daw team collaborated with AU5, the sound design legend himself, to create the AU5 Ableton Sound Design course. Again, as I mentioned, it includes five and a half hours of videos illustrating the most innovative sound design techniques, plus all the instrument racks, effects racks, project files, and we even included a full walkthrough and breakdown of AU5's newest DP, Energize. Right now, we're running a $50 off sale for this course, but this is a very limited time offer, so I'd hop on it right now the original price is usually $150, but for this limited time, you can get it for $100. But if you're just not quite sure it's what you want, then make sure to check out the free mini AU5 Ableton Sound Design course. This way you can get your feet wet and see the types of sounds that you could be making today. There are links in the description for both the full course and the mini course, or you can go to courses.inthedaw.net to get more information. Again, that is courses.inthedaw.net. But Daw Nation, let's get into this week's interview.
you process the vocal, you somehow manage to, especially with the reverb and stuff, manage to sort of add reverb without making the vocal sort of disappear and stuff. The way that I do all my projects, they're split. Typically, I have a separate project for the breaks. I have a separate project for the drop and then a separate project for the vocal. Because in this project, they're just, uh, I just have the bounce. But that's okay. I'll pull it up right now. And uh, so you, you got the vocals with, with Cruella. Did they process their own vocals or did you do the majority of the processing? They did some processing. I usually like to get things dry. And there was already a demo vocal of somebody else who had tried uh, singing it. And that was really, I loved it. Everybody loved it. So a lot of work went into matching it. And I actually used Pro-Q3, the match EQ feature. But I, I'm not sure if you guys have done it. If you use that alone, it can give you some really crazy peaks and valleys in the frequencies that maybe for one line will match it. But on the whole, you get random buildups in the mid lows and stuff uh, because of the correction that it's trying to do. So you use the Pro-Q3 and then you have to use some multiband. There's also in Pro-Q3 now, there's dynamic EQ, which is great. But I don't think it'll match using dynamic EQ. If we could do that, that would be, you know, that would be incredible. What you're looking at here is this crazy comping mixture that I've done. These are the two that are playing. I get lost on the highway, the wind keeps taking away. They all say I won't be happy where I end up. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a crazy comp shot. And Ableton's no good with comping, so you have to make multiple tracks. You have to drag things in quite a bit. I have just a little bit of auto-tune going. I first of all, melody on everything. Uh, I don't like to just leave it to auto-tune. And when I do put auto-tune on, it's it's a pretty pretty slow speed. Let's see, we've got Pokey 3 doing absolutely nothing. This was a separate recording uh, session. So I did have to do some work on here, if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah, it looks like I used Ozone's match. Ozone's match, actually, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, in the end, I liked Ozone's uh, EQ match more. So here you have that, and then you have some DSing using RX, then you have the CLA 2A. They also won't be happy with not slamming it, just a little bit of, of a reduction. And that was to match this vocal. one way. They also that's just some matching stuff. That's nothing terribly interesting. Once I have them sounding about the same. Then I can do processing on both of them and I can assume that as a group, if I process the group, then the, the effects will, it, it'll, they'll still sound about the same. So here's Pro-Q's crazy match curve that it did to match the demo vocal. I had this Maggie Q. I ended up turning it off, but the Maggie Q is a UAD thing, which has a nice air uh, band that you can turn up and, and get some air. So like, it's just EQ, it's just compression. There's there's more compression to get it. Get it a, sort of intense. I use this uh, pressure thing. That just kind of, it gives you that really hard compression sort of uh, smashed feel. I have the reverb and delay on here, but I ended up busting that over here. So what you'll hear here is a chorus. So there's a little bit, there's a doubler going on. That's just the waves doubler. I take the direct one off. So it's just one and two. And then I do it in parallel using a group. So I group the doubler. I have dry here and nothing's happening. And then that's just the doubler. I get lost on the highway. So that gives you a little bit of stereo on the vocal. And then here you have a little delay. That's really tough. And then here I have this plate reverb that I used.
They use Pro R for that. Pro R, I don't always love, but in this case, I, I like it. So that's what you have on the vocals. Friend of mine, I get lost on the highway. The wind keeps taking me one way. You know, honestly, if I was a little more careful, I probably would have done something like putting a glue compressor after the delay, side chaining it to itself, you know, just to get it out of the way. That would have been smart. I didn't do that. The delay is so low that time maybe it doesn't even matter. So, okay, so now that's the verse vocal. So I roll like a stone, hands up in the air. I don't want to care. So that's Yaz uh, singing mostly the lead on it and then these group vocals uh these came from the original demo and th these are really what make uh, the chorus sounds big and you can see it's play with them there's a lot of reverb there's really no way to fake that except to record a bunch of people but something does get very close I didn't use it in this case, but for, for everyone out there who's wanted to create a big, uh, you know, vocal group kind of feel, this thing by Antares, uh, uh, this uh, choir, it's like a vocal multiplier, and you can set up to 32 vo uh, voices. And you might not be able to tell if I do it on this big group, but if I do it on the lead, let's see what happens when I put it on the lead. So I roll. So we got that, now put it on the multiplier. So I roll like a stone, hands up in the air. And you can play with the uh, vibrato that's on it, the pitch variation. So I roll like a stone, hands up in the air. I don't want to care. And you know what? A lot of people want to go really wide when you're creating a crowd, but there's something about actually reducing the width that can make a crowd seem farther away because they all came from one place. And when something's, when you can make out something being distinct in your left and your right ear, it can sound closer to you. So that's a little tip for doing groups to maybe actually sort of compress the stereo image of it because it sounds like a big horde of people coming from one particular place. Uh, I found that to be useful. Or you can mix and match. You can do some in the middle and some on the outside. If you can record like three people even at the same time to get that gang vocal, that helps too. You, you hope everyone has decent pitch because the second that you record everyone at the same time, you, you lose all ability to really pitch correct. There's one called like crowd chamber or something. So here we got the chorus. So I roll like a stone, hands up in the air. And it's subtle, but when you get to the drop, it's uh, the track is not shuffled the whole time, but on the drop it is. So I had to go in and make all these little warpings to make the vocal feel shuffled over there. On the second verse, we have kind of, this is where maybe it gets interesting with the effects that are being done because there's more automation in terms of uh, the delays that kind of come in and, and come out. So I'll let you listen. Back, 
delay. And after the delay, I put on this thing called Space Strip. It's just like a little suite that offers you uh, some modulation, some some kind of chorusy sort of stuff. Ensemble here is gonna be like a chorusy kind of thing. It makes the delays. You get to show off a little bit with the delays. Basically, you get some Grammy award-winning delays, as Dave Pensado would say, and they they just sound a little bit different than the vocal. Whenever I want something to just be super reverb, reverbs. If you notice with like Ableton when you put it on, it doesn't give you what I would call a really clean sort of decay of the original tone. It's bouncing off of some unique environment. And with EOS, I feel like it's just a very clean decay of uh, whatever you you put it on the tones. So if I take the other stuff off, I take EOS off, and then EOS. No delay before the reverb keeps continuing the same tone. It just seems like a very continuous decay of the tone. So EOS is not good for everything, but it sh- I think that should be in everybody's arsenal. Do you compress your reverb tails as well? Reverb and delay tails? No, I, I didn't in this case compress, but I did do volume automation. I've made a little, uh, little uh, what do you call it? A macro or whatever here with the utility, because mm-hmm. I think when they give you infinite in both directions on the utility or, or 60 dB or whatever, it, it's just not really practical. So I just made this little thing and I mapped it to plus 10 and, and minus 10. You hear I duck. Really just when the next line is coming in, I duck. You just manually like duck the tail so that it just goes down and comes back up when the other bar's yeah, coming in. That's right. So it's at negative four and it loses it loses another four when the vocal right. comes. So that's just manual gain uh, riding or volume riding. The guys who do it right automate on delays, like or, or or even reverb in some cases. You could have a small amount always playing short, but uh, when you want a big reverb, I think it's really the most impactful when you automate it because you're filling up a certain space that didn't exist before at that moment. So if you, I, I think reverb is a great way to put emphasis on certain lines. You see that a lot in pop, but sometimes in EDM and hip hop, people just leave, you know, just kind of leave it on. But I think automating is really, is the best way to use reverb, to have like a tight, subtle reverb constantly. And then a big reverb on certain things I found is the best. When she does that sort, that big line, she riffs on Love of Mine, I think it puts more emphasis. I noticed you're using the racks as, a, as like a dry wet. Is that just a workflow thing to give yourself the option of processing the dry separately? Or That's right. And it's kind of my version of a send and return. I have some phobia about send and returns. I just hate this idea that I'm going to need one reverb that works for everything or delay. I just have some phobia about it. And I know all the pros of using sends and returns, but um, I still want the dry wet functionality, but I just, yeah, I do it with that. Do you like uh, use different reverbs for like different elements? Is that like what you're trying to say? If no, using one reverb for all the elements in the mix? Yes. Oftentimes the lead vocal on the verse and the lead vocal on the chorus, for instance, I'm probably going at least to start with, I'm going to copy and paste the same reverb. So there's there's generally a fair amount of consistency. They're mostly the same. There will be certain cases, like with this uh, echo, that I could use a different reverb on. And I want, I'm looking for a specific effect, so I'll just use a different reverb on, right. on that. Don't these reverbs clash with each other? For example, you've layered two elements in, on the same time, and they both have a different reverb, or you're using the same reverb on both the elements? Like my lead vocal 
And let's say there's some backups, like there's like uh, certain lines. She records a left and a right side. So a couple lines pop out with the stereo. She did, she does two extra takes on those lines. Those, those are all getting the same reverb. If there was an echo or something that pops out, I don't think that it's bad for that to have a different reverb. I think it's going to be most useful if they're especially different. Uh, if they're both a long haul reverb, I don't know if it's really bad, but it's not really effective. If you use a smaller reverb and then an element comes in uh, with, with a longer tail and feels like a bigger space, that will stand out more. You know, there's a really good example of actually a hip hop song. You know, the one that's like, Ra with the ma, alhamdulillah. They do such amazing uh, reverb and echo automation on that. There'll be some lines, like every verse he does, there's like three words that pop out with that crazy reverb. And it's so awesome. And if they had done it the whole time, it, it wouldn't be awesome at all. It'd just be a big mess. But it feels like, you know, the more different they are, your brain is really able to distinguish uh, these two different things in different spaces. Yeah, I think I think different reverbs is, is okay, generally. You guys agree with that? What's your take on reverbs using different uh, reverbs? Me, personally, I tend to view it in, like, small room and big room are fine at the same time because you've got, like, dry could be where you are, small room might be slightly away from you and then uh, like a long tail is obviously in the distance so there's some separation but otherwise yeah if they're, if they're very different like a, like a weird convolution reverb and then a more realistic one then they certainly stand out but yeah I mean I, I tend to try not to overcomplicate reverb but then yeah they do definitely have to be normally like one small one big on the same way i love using multiple reverbs and the reason why more of a sound design choice rather than putting something in a space kind of choice so like when we did the clockwise episode he did oh my gosh that what that guy can do with reverb is insane how like one bass is going to explode into a reverb and then suck back up into no reverb and then there's another type of reverb when done tastefully and like in in a sound design sense it like just takes you through this through this journey i think it's really all about contrast what you're talking about the guy's sucking the reverb into a very dry sound the reverb cuts off and suddenly you're in a dry sound i think to your ear that puts so much more emphasis on the dry sound the reverb introduces a lot of kind of like far away on the side the perception to your ears and then to come up with something dry the dry thing before that whole reverb trick may have not sounded particularly impressive but it sounds so much more so after the reverb. Reverb is just a great way to make contrast. I mean, reverb is smearing everything. I think it's a great contrast to put emphasis on the dry things that you that you have. Reverb more and more as something that you almost treat as another lead when you're doing drops. Uh, I think that's become more something you see in songs, like uh, in dance songs. For people even to print the reverb and then do all kinds of volume automation on it, or to leave it as a channel and do volume automation. And you could have a relatively simple melody that on its own sounds boring, but you're creating this continuity between it because for every space in the melody, let's say it's a fairly sparse melody, but a lot of cases using reverb, it's an uncomplicated way to make a simple melody work. Kind of what I'm getting from all of the layers that you have with your vocal. That's where you spread stuff out. That's where you put effects on. That's what all you do. But your main vocal, your lead vocal, just to nail the the nail in the coffin, it is mono and it is upfront and there's no effects on it, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the song. The other stuff is sort of, you know, just to blend. 
really blend in with the rest of the track and put it in a in a space. But yeah, it should all before you get to any of that, you should really always be happy with the compression, the EQ on your vocal. And that alone should kind of, you know, do okay. I heard I think it was Steve Duda, he said he wishes people would use more delays and reverb because it's it's cleaner. And I know what he mean I do know what he means by that. There's something about using delay that you'll find you have to use rest, less reverb, I think, to to accomplish what you're looking for. So first things we hear is like a little atmosphere. This is just atmosphere. So little, little just kind of ditties. I think I think once you've gotten the chords of the song, you've gotten what the melodies are, then you start adding the ditties, and I think that's that's always a really fun part as a you know as a producer. Guitar that doesn't come until later. So really, we just got piano. I believe this piano was given to me by the people who wrote the song, but uh, I use another piano later and I'll, I'll show you what my favorite piano generally is to use is this uh, the giant and it's so underrated. It's so good. This thing is really great. And uh, I put it on giant pop. You just hear. And so I do that, and I in this case, I just went crazy with the multi-band compression, which is debatable if that's a good idea or not, but there's so many other elements going on right now. I recommend for anybody who's trying to get a good, like, hard sound out of your piano, you could go with the 76, go to load, and the under bluey, you could go to rock my piano. And that's a great uh, setting for just slamming it. Compressors are all different, and uh, for piano, I like that one. There's also piano-centric. I use this sometimes. I believe this guy's name is George Wells, GW, Greg Wells. Sorry, Greg Wells. And this is this is great for, uh, if you wanted to, it might be great for everything, but if you wanted to have just a vocal with the piano and you're wondering why your piano sounds a little stiff, this can really help you out. I think, I believe it's doing some saturation compression or add a doubler, it'll add a delay. My little secrets for piano. Oh, one more secret for piano, actually, is this vitamin. You guys played with this vitamin at all? I've heard of this thing before i've never played with it i've heard of it this is like a saturator essentially with some other thing now this is going to be really extreme uh, but now there's already a lot going on in this piano but before there are any effects pianos generally tend to be pretty mid heavy mid low heavy so this guy just really slams it and he's probably doing the job of these multi-band and it also offers you some width control if you need something that sounds too acoustic, I would say, to fit into a dance track, Vitamin is a great resource. So then we have some guitar plugs come in, we have a kalimba. I always love kalimba and uh, it's kind of to a detriment because I know they're so cheesy, but I love We have a little pack going on, but I think the real shining star of this section is this guitar. And this guitar comes from Contact, and it's a strummed acoustic from Native the Session Guitar Strum Acoustic. And it's a little bit limiting if you want to create your own patterns, but what they do offer you 
just sounds great, like right out the box. They also offer you a bunch of presets. Some of them have doubling, some of them don't, but this thing really just sounds like a ready-to-go record right out the box. So is it like the autocode function all on this one? Yes. Yeah, that's just more of the same instrument, but that one is uh, flattened. The way that this course works really is by sucking out and everything being filtered. And we do a little sub drop, easy sub drop, which you find here. And coming off of a verse that was fairly full, that felt like the right way to put attention on the chorus. There's some, uh, these ones were provided by the writers, I think. This like give you some uh, higher frequencies, sound a little more steely. The guitar, and then on the drums. Let's see, we have a little. I don't know, like a, almost a country thing, like a boom, clap, boom, clap, clap, sort of on the uh, every uh, offbeat. And then for the build, we introduce the other drum. And you see, I try to transition you into the shuffle. Did you guys see? It was kind of, at that point, almost just like mathematically, how am I going to get the listener to be prepared for a, a shuffle-y kind of thing? So I just, I, I believe I just manually started to make it shuffle more, basically, which is a real pain. As a producer, you always want like a simple, elegant solution to something. And then sometimes you just have to do the most time-consuming, most obvious thing, which is to just slowly make it shuffle. So you have this whole array of different orchestral things. One thing I'd, I'd recommend with orchestral drums is, uh, especially if you're using ones from Contact, really tame the release on them all. Because that low end, it's such a ugly, difficult thing to deal with. Like the low end on orchestral drums is so boomy and confused. It's just a lot of rumble. I've tried a lot of different things. I've, I've tried taking out the lows, but then you sort of miss what makes it an orchestral drum and feels big. The thing I do the most is to shorten the decay, you know, the release on the drums, or you can, you could open up Alloy. You guys use this ever? I haven't forever. I think ever since like Ozone came out, I kind of ditched Alloy. Okay, so you might like that, but this is a comp, this could be accomplished with really any transient designer. You just go to multiband and you put the sustain down on the lows. See how that changed it a bit? That's another way that you could do it. A lot tighter now, right? Maybe too tight, but you know. 
There's another, this is sort of off topic, but there's there's a great transient designer that I just got. And it's really, a, it's really just a transient splitter. So you set a certain, it gives you more controls than we've ever seen with the transient designer. And you set a certain threshold that you're gonna determine is the transient. So I'll turn off the sustain that's here on the right. So based on that, now we put stain on, you could add highs to your transient. You could take out lows from the sustain of it. You could increase the release, which is really cool. So this is, in my opinion, the most versatile uh, transient design, because it's not just like, oh, you want to make it more clicky. It's, it's not just that. It really, really splits the two and gives you control over them. Also, are you using any sort of compression on the bus? For example, like you, as I see, like you've grouped all the orchestral drums that you have on the build ups. Like, have you like compressed them together? Or like you've applied individual compression on the elements? Nope, not really. I've done some EQ. To be fair, I would take this project and stem it out. I, I did take this project and stem it out and then do a mix there. The reason that I'm not showing you guys that one is because just you wouldn't really see all the different elements. It would be it would be at that point uh, condensed into just like 10 stems. So I wouldn't be able to open up the different instruments and stuff. I do a stem mix after this big project where everything is still individual. That's not to say I don't do compression along the way. In this case, I was just kind of lazy. And I figured sometimes I'll just kind of rush through things and I'll say, you know what, you're gonna, when you get to the stem mix, you'll, you'll do that. It's lazy, but honestly, it also kind of helps keep your spirits up while you're making the track. Cause you're like, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna sit here and dissect this too much. I'm going to uh, work that out when I do the stem mix. That's also why I like to split up the project into the break and the drop so that I don't feel that, you know, if I'm using same the same drums from the break, for instance, I might feel compelled, like I don't want to change too much. I want to keep some setting that works for the verse and the drop on this kick. And so I sort of feel compelled to not make drastic changes because I'm worried about how they might affect the verse because I'm trying to make uh, elements coexist in both sections. Doing it on a separate project and then simplifying I think it puts your brain in more of a creative space. Kind of the same reason we all like to start new projects. And we all want to say, you know, now it's got, it's at 150 tracks. I'd rather just start something new. There is a science behind that. I think your brain feels more creative when it's not encumbered by these 100 different tracks. When it's at 100, 150 tracks, this whole thing is like juggling a big math equation. And the more often that you can simplify something down, let's say, I was working on this, it was a whole project, and I just make it the drop, and I save that as a new project, and I delete everything else. My brain is able to wrap it, you know, wrap itself around 15 elements now, and I'm more in a creative headspace where I'm you know, thinking creatively and not juggling, you know? So anyway, that was a big uh, rant sort of about workflow that you didn't ask for, but that's... I think it's important to recognize your brain has a finite processing capacity and to take measures that make things easier for your brain. I think you get good results. Did I see that on the think about in the piano, there was a five semitone MIDI effect on some chords or did I miss 
see that. Yes, come, that's come right. That's because, and I'm sort of embarrassed about this, but there are keys that I'm just a lot more comfortable in. I'd say mm -hmm. E minor, D minor, F minor, sharp minor, even things that I've picked up from working on uh, songs in that key. And then sometimes I'll get hit with a bit of a wild card, like A sharp minor. I'm not super versed in that key. And it's not that I couldn't sit there and figure it out. I am a little bit more intuitive if I put it in F minor. That's my favorite key. I sort of know how a chord will function in that key. I know uh, which notes are going to function to create a, a darker feel versus a more positive feel. For instance, like the interval between the G sharp and the C will be more positive, and the interval between the G and the G uh, or A flat, I guess I should say, is going to be more more negative or, or darker. Those things come very intuitively to me in this key. So I was lazy here, and I wrote everything in minor, and I transposed it with that MIDI effect. If you're not comfortable in the key, uh, that's an easy way to still work on a track. You know, looking at how you have things named, like different clips in here named, I don't know if it's named because those are your samples or because it's the name of you know, like your track in there. So how often do you use your own samples from your own sample packs? All the time. I mean, the sample packs initially for me were a way of putting all of my sounds that I like to in, in, in one place. It's it sort of stayed that way. Volume three, it was such an adoring process because I was consumed with making every sound that I had for from other packs in the last uh, year or however long however long it had been since the last volume with three i wanted it to be this comprehensive thing that allowed me to not have to dive elsewhere reach elsewhere for the sounds that i needed it, you know it wasn't a hundred percent success but it but it was pretty close i found that most of what I need generally I can get from the pack. That process of making the pack was just unbelievable. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever make the pack again after volume three. I mean, I'm sure I will, but a lot more toned down, smaller scale, because it was like six months I was working on that thing. There were so many weeks that would go by where I, I was, I hadn't really worked on a song. I was just working on this this pack and I, you know, I was finishing folders and then I was writing down new ideas for new folders. It, it just became this obsession and uh, it wasn't really healthy for my career after, after a while like, to keep going. I had to stop. It was fun, but it was like a time warp of sitting up at 4 a.m. tuning some, putting a transit design on his truck, you know, asking my friends what they thought. They couldn't even hear the difference. All right. Too much. Okay, so that's the first first. Yeah, and then I have this break two option. Another thing I, I just want to mention, if it makes producers out there feel better, I create so many different versions of every song, like so many different breaks and. That was going to be one of them that didn't end up making the final cut, but I still thought I included it in the project just to let people know that was like one of five that I, that I tried. The version on break two that I ended up going with was this, um, I'm not sure what you guys call this, this like kind of retro wave or synth wave, synth wave, which is a sound that I'm a big fan of. I used Arcade 
to get this atmosphere. You ever play with Arcade? I've heard great things. It is great, yeah. It's just, it's kind of like Exhale. Basically, they'll offer you a little family of sounds, and they're usually atmospheric kind of things, or like little riffs. And in this case, I used it, uh, get together. You really can't beat texture. Texture is a really important thing. And good songs have good, good textures. So anyway. And then in this case, I believe what I did is I took the piano and I just took the reverb and I flattened the reverb. I think that's what we're hearing here. And it's sort of automating in and out to give you, uh, I, I mute the vocal. guys nice luck because it kind of leads you into the uh the next section i would call this section the verse and then the next section is the pre-hook uh where she says pre-hook so then this this bell kind of gets you there It's kind of uh, breaking the chords up and then uh, doing some extra notes to lead you into the next chords. So there's that, there's this bass. So got a growly sort of bass mixed with this arpeggiating bass. Nothing really makes you feel like a synthwave thing, like a bunch of toms, these kind of hard 80s sort of toms. In the pack, in the Sense Casual Volume 3, there's a bunch of toms that come in families. So you get a high, you get a mid and a low. And I took these and put them in drum rack. I panned one to the left, one in the center, one to the right, put some reverb, and then I smashed it a little bit with a multi-band compressor. And I think that, in combo with the snare, gives you this nice fill. I didn't find too many places to do this, but this is the one place where I got to do my sort of orchestral stuff. I, I really love including orchestral things in tracks. This one didn't really quite fit for most of it, but I did get to do this. There's the modulation. When you're dealing with strings with the nice contact stuff, you get, I usually use the CC1, which is your mod wheel, to do the dynamics or the expression or whatever you call it, which is basically the uh, intensity or, or volume of the strings. And that's usually crucial to give you a real sound because strings do tend to swell. And if you don't use this, you get, you get a more of a static kind of sound. So yeah, this one I started out with. This is a string ensemble. This is the higher notes and deal. Nothing particularly crazy there. I think the solo ones are always really nice because they'll have a great uh, legato. They usually put work into a legato.
So instead of just being a static sort of transition between the notes, uh, you actually get some. This is from uh, Spitfire. This is a solo strings. So yeah, all in all, oh yeah, the Tina Guo cello is just the best. The Tina Guo cello, it's modeled after this famous cellist who works with Hans. He's done a lot of scores and stuff, I think. Tina Guo, she has her own contact instrument. So just by herself, she's so expressive. You're gonna inevitably have some bigger string section things to make it sound full. But if you can add a little detail like that, like one solo, then your ear will focus on that and it'll hear the nice vibrato from that. It'll hear the nice legato from that. I think that's how you can make it feel extra special. And not just like you used a, a, a big string pad, you know, that could have been from anywhere. If you put like a couple solo voices on it, that tends to make it really nice. It's a question about the strings. How do you usually place them in the mix in terms of the spacing? And if it's under a vocal, uh, is there any specific EQ that you add on it? For example, you know, if a vocal is playing a certain frequency band, so do you uh, cut that out from the strings or you just let it be the way they are? I don't think you always need to cut. And at this stage, I hadn't cut anything. The, you know, with something that's just pretty and and potentially full sounding as strings, it's really nice if you don't have to cut. If I do start making cuts, they they can really quickly sound thin. And at the, in these octaves, I don't really think it's clashing with a, a vocal. It's a good question how to make it coexist with the vocal. Let's see if I just solo that. You have to keep in mind, most of these patches are also not solo patches. So they naturally sound far away and they sound wider and they sound sort of smeared. So that alone is going to allow a lot of space for, for your vocal. The solo patches. I don't want to sacrifice the little things that make life. You know what, it, it really just ends up working out. Also, you put a little reverb, that that's going to throw it in the back a little bit. And then the, the Tina's cello is uh, such a lower octave that uh, it's not a problem. There have been tracks where I really fuse orchestral instruments with other dance elements like synths and things. Like that. And I did have to get really abusive in those cases with EQ and saturation to really carve out just what the strings were going to be doing. What kind of a reverb are you using on the strings right now? Like, is it like a plate reverb or a hall reverb? Because you're really pushing a few of the solo ones, you're pushing them behind? Well, to be honest, they, these patches are going to come with, you, you wouldn't even say reverb, but they're, they're recorded proudly yeah. in some space. They always like to talk about how he's recorded in this cathedral or in this, you know, in this hall, particular hall. So you don't really need to add a lot more reverb of your own. In the cases where I did add a reverb, it was not done very intelligently. It was just slapping uh, Ableton. And this was really just, I wanted to push it farther back. And you could say that's really unprofessional or whatever, but you know, it just, it pushes it farther back. And it's really not so that you hear it in a space. Honestly, a lot of what I'm doing is probably, you know, with the dry wet going up is making it conform to this, uh, the filters that it has on it. And that's probably part of why it gets put back. It gets smeared and then these various filters 
as it's becoming more and more just the reverb signal, these filters are subduing its sound. You know. So could you could you please talk a little more about the filters and the reverb? Because I see you using the filters on every reverb that you have. There's a filter that you can apply to what the reverb is considering when it creates its sound. So it is uh, considering the frequencies within this bell curve, and it's deciding not to react to the frequencies outside of that bell curve. So that's the first round of filtering. The diffusion network tames, I don't think it's as simple as filtering, but it, it is taming the high end uh, on the decay of it. The diffusion, just the process of creating the reverb sound, you know what, I'm not going to act like I know I know exactly what it's doing, but it's taming the high frequencies here. You also have chorus, which is smearing it. I, I definitely recommend putting EQ on your reverb. You could also put com compression, you could put de-essing on your reverbs also. I think putting de-essing on the signal before it gets to your reverb, you could really slam the de-essing. Like you could go harder on the signal that's going to be fed into the reverb with the S-ing, then you might want to go on the actual dry sound uh, that's yeah. front and center. The signal being fed to reverb, I think you could go really hard on the de-essing. And um, really, the reverb is so smeared that you can really punch it and kick it and de-ess it and do whatever you want to get the reverb sound that you want. And you don't have to worry that it's going to sound unnatural. I mean, reverb is it's so cloudy and smeared that you have a lot of room to abuse the signal uh, that's going into it on your return channel. While we're still on the topic of reverbs, have you ever used the... Uh the Max for Live convolution. No, I haven't used it. Is that is that new or is that? Uh... No, yeah, that's that's been there for what since eight, since nine, since. Yeah, it's been around since eight and before. I think. Yeah. It's my favorite reverb by far. Let me put it on something that you'll be able to really hear it. Here, I'll put it on this. And I'll take the reverb off of that for now. And then what just go just the pro? Am I a pro or am I... the pro is a little bit high higher quality? But it's worth noting it's still technically compared to some of the other convolution reverbs, it's technically low uh, quite a bit lower quality, but it's got quite a nice unique sound. And, and you can also drag in your own impulse. So you can drag in like text textures and drum loops uh, to create this kind of rhythmic reverb almost. It's really cool. Is that right? So I, I understand sort of the idea of of modeling and impulse response responses, modeling that off of audio, but convolution being based off of a drum loop person. So you, you can literally, uh, in, in that impulse window bit, you can drag in literally any shortish WAV or AI FF you like. And in fact, if you don't have any to hand, if you go to the type and change it to experimental, um, there are a whole bunch of really weird impulses. I, I just wanted to hear it, sorry, first, just kind of as it's meant to be. Yeah, that, that does sound nice. And then the exper experimental, and then there's a whole bunch of really weird, like reverse ones and really un un unusual impulses. And you can even put like chords in there as well to create this kind of like slightly harmonic reverbs, which is which is quite fun. The the one that really gets me, the the type in there that really gets me is called Demon Delay. Obviously not not for like making things sound pretty. This is totally on the like sound design kick. But yeah. But that 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 is cool. All right, now I'm gonna yeah, I'll start I'll start using that one. If you're gonna do something like if you have just a vocal on the piano and you wanna really 
that's a place, you know, the reverb could really shine with fewer elements going on. There's an alta verb. Have you messed with that? That thing is so beautiful. That thing really does a great job imitating spaces and stuff. But it's sometimes too full and you can't really appreciate its detail once you got other stuff going on. But in, in simple things, I think it could work pretty well. Yeah, I have this piano. And then to give it a little more movement, I decided to layer with another piano that's doing a eighth notes instead of quarter. And that gives you like a kind of like a, I need a dollar, 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 what I need. Soulful black guy is saying about uh, the city. Did, did this track take you roughly? September, five months, I guess. But you know, but you get most of it done and then little things come up and you know how it is. Yeah, and that distortion that you hear, that is trash at work uh, because getting the, I actually liked how it sounded having a bit of a reverb fed into the distortion. But whenever the main melody stops, it, that distortion brings a reverb up and emulates like you, like you heard. So yeah, this is, I don't use trash a lot. So I'm sort of limited to being kind of like a preset guy on here, but I found a preset that I like. Here's how the group of leads sounded before. Trash. Honestly, these days, I like to uh, not find the perfect lead necessarily. Just take something decent and then throw a lot of distortion and, and things to make it interesting. Like you take something, you're like, okay, this is fine, but, you, but I'm just going to like wreck it with distortion and saturation and see what comes out of that. Almost treating that as part of the initial sound design process. Have a super saw layer. Superstar layers, I mean, you just can't really avoid it. It's like a necessary evil to just make things sound bigger because without it. Huge, uh, almost, it's like a choir of synths. And these things are down here. They're fairly dry. I just felt that uh, when I was like A and B on laptop speakers, like it was missing some warmth sounded a little a little thin so these guys sometimes i'll just insert these they can be dry and they just they follow the melody and just give it a little bit of a uh, body so that that's what those guys do then i think also it's important when writing these melodies that you put emphasis on certain notes and not on others i found for me that helps make melodies feel a little less stagnant so in this case you use vocal chop only hits the first two so when you But I think the temptation can be to find the stack of synths you'll play your entire melody with, and it's just about finding the right combination, and, and it'll sound perfect. But I think oftentimes uh, your melody will be much more interesting if you use uh, some bass synths that do the whole thing, but then others that accentuate certain parts. That's been really useful for me in keeping things interesting. In terms of writing this melody, I'd say that there is some parallel between this and the uh, the chorus. And and for me, that's what made it work. So I'll show you what I mean. If I pull up on Melodyne, what her voice is doing, looks like this. Like 
Castillo's F uh, between this, this E flat and then the C. So that seems to be the theme in what she does. Da -da 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 -da. And in the melody, we sort of take that and then we run with it and we get da 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 da. So it's sort of taking something you're already familiar with. Sometimes when I'm making a track, I try a bunch of different melodies and I, I kind of always get led back to uh, some sort of drop melody that takes inspiration from the chorus or some other part of the song. There you go, we got drums. This is one of my favorite loops in the favorite folders in the, the sound pack, which are these vintage soul loops. These are kind of intended to sound like breaks and be sort of funky. And uh, anyway, they make their way into this track. So yeah, got all kinds of music. I'm a big fan of everything sweeping all the time to sort of uh, pull you into the next uh, section or pull you into the next clap. Clap. Let's see, we have bass. And why I need four basses, I really don't know. But, uh... I believe this one is doing the fifth on the chords. Yeah. Quick question on the drums. Do you like ban your claps and snares and you know, like everything except your kicks? So like in the groove, for example, you've got hi-hats or claps snares running in together so do you actually pan them or you just let them be dead in the center um i try to keep drums in the center uh it it can be tempting to push them to the side but i find that after you put a lot of things on the side synths and so forth it's really nice to have your drums in the middle as a thing that sort of senses it now whatever stereo image came with this I probably left it on there. In this case, it doesn't really look like a pan. Now, how I allow these all to coexist and really take up the subrange. I... Okay, this is probably something I fixed in the mixing, because obviously the bass has a lot of sub in it. And there's another sub to boot. But even as it is, it doesn't sound terribly bad. I think we tend to over-EQ, although this is not enough EQ. This is something that helps kind of create the space I was looking for, just an omnisphere. These are just like kind of resonant things. Just little blips that give you some atmosphere. A lot of uh, crashes and things like that, you know, giving you the high end that you need. Then there are hi-hats that come in here. Yeah, so you have a shaker and a hi-hat, and I think the shaker is taking... Okay, so finally we have some panning. I was not even playing. Okay, no panning. I like the shaker and the, the hi-hat combo because the shaker is a little bit softer on the uh, attack. It's not got such a transient. So I think the two kind of coexist nicely to uh, give you the transient, but also give you kind of like a softer, high frequency noise that's giving you rhythm. It's pretty straightforward and uh, 
all the magic is being done uh, with the sense and going through the trash. And then I have some layers that that don't have distortion on them because I'm I'm sure you guys know when you add distortion to things, it can make it sound bigger, but in some ways sound a bit smaller as it sort of reduces the fidelity of your noise. So you you can wind up with something that sounds uh, kind of thin. It always seems like some range of frequencies uh, ends up getting lost. So I go in with the dry warmth. Uh, providing the warmth. You know, the dry ones are doing the lower. We all really, really appreciate you coming on and doing this, dude. Did, did you have a good time doing it? Sure, yeah. Fun to talk to uh, other producers. And uh, honestly, I wish I would have heard more from you guys. I'd be curious to get some tips from you guys by uh, next episode. Next episode, we'll, we'll unleash it for you, all right? Sure. Hey, Daw Nation. Hope you enjoyed this episode of In the Daw with Kashmir, breaking down his song, No Regrets. If you're interested in the AU5 Ableton Sound Design course or in the free mini AU5 Ableton Sound Design course, make sure to check out the links in the description or just go to courses.inthedaw.net. That is courses.inthedaw.net. Again, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, repost, follow, you know, whatever is appropriate on the particular platform that you're listening on, like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Deezer, YouTube. I think I already said YouTube. Doesn't matter. Wherever you're at, it just helps us know that what we're doing is moving in the direction that you need us to donation. And finally, I would highly encourage you to check out the last episode of Behind the Daw. That episode was with Harrison Bennett, who is the label manager of Zed's Dead's label, Deadbeats. He talks about how to find Spotify playlist curators and how to reach out to them, how to have a plan B when a song release doesn't go as planned, and what Harrison would do if Zed's Dead were brand new into the scene in 2019 and how he would push their career forward. So link in the description for that episode and of course make sure to click the link in the description so that you can download the stems to the song that cashmere broke down in this episode of in the daw as well as getting over a hundred samples from the sounds of cashmere three pack again all of this is free link in the description if you simply cannot click on the link in the description because of the certain podcast app that you're listening on don't worry just go to in the daw.net slash cashmere that is in the daw.net slash k-s-h-m-r so donation this was a great episode I'm glad you could join me with this, but let's hear the final word from our sponsors. Daw Nation, in this episode, you have heard me talk so much about the AU5 Ableton Sound Design course. Again, I would highly encourage you to check it out or at least check out the free course. I know that it can help you. And the reason why is because we have already had almost 500 people sign up for the course within the first week. And I have heard nothing but positive feedback. But Daw Nation, I want to talk to you about a different course that we're going to be launching in 2019. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you picked up the Ableton Live 10 manual and read the entire thing? In fact, when was the last time that you've even seen the Ableton Live 10 manual? There are two cold hard facts about the Ableton manual. Number one, it is incredibly insightful on how to use Ableton to its max potential. And number two, it is amazingly boring to read. And it's not even Ableton's fault. That's just the nature of manuals. They're dry, unengaging, and have the personality of a used popsicle stick. Which is why I am extremely proud to announce that our next course is going to be the Daddy Ableton Manual course. Now you know Daddy. He's been on In the Dawn, Behind the Dawn multiple times, bringing the jokes, making you laugh, while still bringing the max amount of information and inspiration. So in this course, he is going to go through every single little thing of the Ableton Live 10 manual and explain it in a hilarious, engaging, and memorable way. We've already pitched the idea to our colleagues in the music industry, and their feedback has been, quote, finally, this is something that I know that I can recommend to people to fully understand everything about Ableton while they can be entertained the entire time and they don't have to break the bank, 
end quote. Now, Don Nation, listen very carefully. We just opened up the pre-orders for this course. And if you hop on the pre-order right now, you will save $100 on this course. The original price of the course is going to be $250. But if you click the link in the description, then the price is only $150. One of the pre-order bonuses is that if you pre-order before June 1st, 2019, Daddy and I will personally FaceTime you to meet you and to say thank you. And the second bonus for pre-ordering the course is that you will be brought to a page where you can tell us what you want to see as bonuses when the full course releases. That's right. You get to decide what the actual bonuses are for the full course. I mean, just imagine it. You get to learn everything there is to know about Ableton Live 10 while being wildly entertained for only $150. That's $30 less than Serum. That's a tenth of the price of Native Instruments Complete Ultimate. That's a third of the price of Omnisphere. That's a tenth of the price of a Moog synthesizer. That's a fifth of the price of the Ableton Push 2. And you get the picture. Again, there is a link in the description for the pre-order where you will get $100 off the original price or you can go to inthedaw.net slash live10 to sign up. Again, that is inthedaw.net slash live10. The Daw Nation, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Behind the Daw and make sure to check back here next week for our next episode.